AFF on Air, the Australian Frequent Flyer podcast is boarding. Step on board for the latest news, tips and tricks for Australian travellers. Your captain, Matt Graham, now invites you to sit back, relax and enjoy the episode. G'day and a very warm welcome to episode 101 of AFF On Air. It's the 6th of May, 2023. In this episode, I'll be joined for an extended interview by Silver McLeod, Tonga's first ever female airline pilot, about the journey that took her from a small island in the Pacific to the cockpit of a Boeing 777 flying over the Pacific. Silver's first airline job was uh, flying twin otters for Royal Tongan Airlines in the 1990s, but she then went on to fly in Australia for Aero Pelican, the Royal Flying Doctor Service, and ultimately with Virgin Blue, which later became known as Virgin Australia. It's a great story, and I'm sure you'll find it an interesting chat. Also coming up later, getting to Hawaii with Velocity Frequent Flyer Points has just become easier. But first, let's begin with a roundup of the latest Australian airline travel and loyalty program news. And Vanessa Hudson has been announced as the new Qantas CEO. She'll take over from current Chief Executive Officer Alan Joyce when he retires in November. Hudson has been with Qantas for the last 28 years. She's previously held roles including General Manager of In-Flight Services, Chief Customer Officer, and is currently the Chief Financial Officer for the Qantas Group. Hudson will also become the first female CEO of Qantas. Other contenders for the top job had included Qantas loyalty CEO Olivia Wirth. Meanwhile, the ACCC has rejected Qantas's proposed acquisition of Alliance Airlines. After a thorough investigation, the consumer watchdog concluded that this would result in substantially less competition on routes, particularly in Queensland and Western Australia, um, that fly lots of workers to mining sites. Qantas has already purchased a 19.9% stake in Alliance Airlines, which is also now operating Embraer E-190 jets on behalf of QantasLink. Qantas has started flying direct between Melbourne and Exmouth twice a week using Boeing 737s. The seasonal route will run until October, and given the lead-in fares of $531 one way, you'd have to say that this route would be a pretty good use of uh, Qantas frequent flyer points. United Airlines will massively expand its service into Australia and New Zealand later this year, launching three new routes and increasing service on existing ones. From November, United will fly direct from Brisbane to Los Angeles three times a week. It will also launch a new Auckland to Los Angeles service in October this year and a seasonal Christchurch to San Francisco route for four months over the Southern Hemisphere summer starting in December. And that's in addition to more capacity on flights from Brisbane, Sydney and Melbourne to San Francisco. United, of course, began partnering with Virgin Australia last year. The Adelaide to Kuala Lumpur route will get some more competition as well from July, with Batik Air launching direct flights on its Boeing 737 MAX, competing with Malaysia Airlines. Emirates is now offering premium economy on one of its daily flights from Melbourne to Dubai. Melbourne becomes the fifth Emirates destination from Dubai with premium economy available on the A380, after Sydney, Auckland, Christchurch and London. Passengers with a long transit time in Singapore can now once again enjoy a free city tour. The popular free Singapore transit tours are back with updated itineraries, and there's even a new uh, Changi Precinct tour. 
Each tour currently runs daily, but there are plans to progressively increase this to nine daily tours. To take part, you would need to have a transit in Singapore on the same ticket, but with any airline, of between five and a half and 24 hours. And this would need to, con- to coincide with one of the tour start times. Australians will soon be able to complete the full passport renewal process online without needing to visit a post office. And meanwhile, the current renewal times for Australian passports have come down considerably in recent months, which is good news for those planning overseas travel in the near future. ING Bank is removing the popular international ATM operator fee rebate from its Orange Everyday Bank account, effective from the 1st of August. And this was a unique feature of this particular account because ING was the only Australian bank offering this. British Airways has increased the cost of buying Avios, its frequent flyer point currency, for accounts registered in Europe and the UK. But it has decreased the cost for everyone else who's paying in US dollars, which includes Australian residents. The changes also impact the cost of buying Avios with Iberia Plus or Aer Lingus Air Club, as well as British Airways subscriptions of Avios, but only for new subscribers after the 1st of May this year. Qantas has reopened its first-class check-in suite at Melbourne's International Terminal. Japan is no longer requiring visitors to show proof of COVID-19 vaccination or a test certificate, and the United States will also soon follow dropping its COVID-19 vaccine requirement for international visitors. Virgin Australia has extended its middle seat lottery for another 11 weeks. As part of this promotion, each week, one lucky passenger who was unlucky enough to sit in the middle seat on a Virgin Australia flight will win a prize. For example, this week's winner will get a tropical North Queensland getaway, while next week's winner gets returned flights for two to Vanuatu and 250,000 velocity points. Velocity Frequent Flyers twice yearly transfer bonus offer is back for May 2023. Until the 31st of May, you can earn 15% bonus velocity points when transferring points from many participating credit card and hotel loyalty programs. And Marriott Bonvoy's bonus points promotion on transfers from American Express membership rewards is back for the month of May. Until the 31st of May, you can get 50% bonus points when you transfer Amex membership rewards points into Marriott Bonvoy, making it a 1 to 1 conversion rate instead of the usual 3 to 2. This could be a very lucrative way to access points in frequent flyer programs that don't otherwise partner with American Express, such as Delta SkyMiles, British Airways Executive Club, or Air Canada Aeroplan, since you can transfer points then from Marriott into a whole bunch of different airline programs. For more information about why this is a particularly good offer, you can go back and listen to episode 93 of this podcast, where I spoke in depth with Chris Chamberlain about how to take advantage of that offer last time the same offer was around. That's what's making news at the moment. For more regular updates, don't forget to subscribe to the Australian Frequent Flyer Gazette to get the latest news, deals and community updates straight to your inbox for free every Monday and Thursday. Flying for an international airline is a dream job for many, but the barriers to entry are particularly high. Many commercial pilots have had to make lots of sacrifices to get to where they are, uh, and they've invested a lot of time and money into completing their training, even After doing that, though, getting a job at an airline isn't guaranteed. For Silva McLeod, who's originally from Tonga, the amount of sacrifices required to eventually become a Boeing 777 pilot for Virgin Australia were especially great. And in her new book, Island Girl to Airline Pilot, Silva tells her story of how she became the first ever Tongan female airline pilot. It's a fascinating story. And to talk about it, I'm joined today on the AFF On Air podcast by Silva herself. Welcome. 
Thank you, Matt. Hi. It's great to have you on the podcast. I wanted to start by asking you about growing up in Tonga. What was life like as a as a young girl and as a teenager in Tonga? Very difficult to convey my story as growing up in Tonga because we are all out here in the Western world where everything is so easy. Um, growing up in a tiny little village, 200-odd people, we have a thatched roof home. Everything is manual. You go and collect your firewood. You bring it home, you light the fire, you cook your food. There's no running water, there's no electricity, no gas. We have to go and fetch the water from a well and bring it home. And I often joke about it for years of carrying those heavy bales of water. Um, I think it stretched my arm so long. <laughs> it uh, came in handy later on in life with netball. So with the long arms, but uh, growing up in Tonga, it's tough. But in saying that, everyone have their own toughness in where they grow up. So mm. it's just this is mine. I didn't know any different. I didn't know any better. So what I grew up with, I was happy. There's mm. nothing to compare. There was no television, no newspaper to see the outside world how it should be. So what did you think you were going to do when you grew up when you were in Tonga? Get married, have babies, and uh, continue the cycle, you know, of uh, doing everything manually. Yeah. So why did you want to be a pilot? You talk about in your book how it was a dream of yours since you were a, a child. Why was that? I often describe the difference between dream and fantasy. I call it a fantasy because a dream, I think, how I interpret that, that's something I would like to work towards. It's a goal and I will eventually get there. A fantasy, that's how it was. It's going to end there. It will always be something far-fetched that it will never happen. So it's all in my mind, in my own fantasy world. For every time an aircraft fly over our hut, I will run out, call grandma, call everybody to have a look, and I will point to the sky and I will follow that aeroplane until it disappeared. And why I say fantasy, because my curiosity took over as I start thinking, oh, wow, how clever would that be to fly a machine? Wow, how could they keep this aircraft up there? So... That's how I relate to it. Fantasy never, ever in my wildest dream believe that that could be something I could do. And you, you talk about in your book how you shared your dream with Ken, who um, who you met as, um, in Tonga when you were about 18, I believe, and um, you eventually got married and moved to Australia with him. Um, and you said that Ken was very supportive, but you didn't tell anybody else about your dream. Why was that? In Tonga, in a tiny little island, for everyone on my in my peers, that's all we have the same. What else can we do? We are stuck in an island. And for me to verbalize a fantasy or something I want to be, and that is so far-fetched. Can you imagine how the kids would be running around? Ah, you know, <laughs> that's never going to happen. Come down a little notch and all these kind of mocking, uh, uh, teasing behavior. So I kept it so tight in my chest until that weakest moment when I thought Ken was trustworthy. He looked like, yeah, maybe I can trust him. 
And if our relationship doesn't eventuate, then my secret is safe because he'll go back to Australia and I'm sure he'll never tell another soul. So he caught me in my weakest moment because he was the one who asked, did you ever have any dreams? (laughs) And I said, you tell me yours first and eventually came to mine. And I said, I dreamt of being a doctor to help my family, my village, which needed, badly needed some medical profession help that even now they still need more. Um, So that was the nurturing in me that I wanted to do that. But the fantasy to fly and for, for dreaming to be a doctor, it was quite achievable because there were already Tongan doctors, male, and I can look up to those. But for a pilot, come on, I didn't know anybody who fly a plane I don't think any Tongan in that time know anyone who fly a plane, let alone wanting to be one. So, um, yes, I told Ken and he, and I make him promise he'll never laugh and never tell a soul. And he did. And we never discussed it after that Sunday afternoon at the beach. Tell me about your very first flight from, I hope I pronounced this right, from Vava'u, the island where you grew up to Nukualofa. I was with Ken. We were on our way back here to Australia. So that was my first flight. It was, uh, even though I was fascinated and had that fantasy about aeroplanes, to actually hop in one, and it was only a small one, there were so much overwhelming fear, excitement, all roll into one. But you're young, you're in love, this white man is going to take me somewhere, you know, what I call the promised land. And uh, as long as Ken was with me, everything will be okay. So that flight was full of Tongans, except Ken. And what stuck in my head is these two gods, (laughs) two pilots were out at the cockpit. And this aircraft, there was no closed cockpit, was only a 19-seaters. And you can see straight through. And then they were uh, making the safety brief. I had enough English knowledge to understand what's the safety breach about donning a life jacket, emergency exit, blah, blah, blah. And I'm looking around and I thought none of these people understand because they were reading, they were busy digging food out of their bag, get ready for the flight. And, and I thought, geez, I hope we won't ditch. Because all the PA that I could understand, it's all about the overwater flying we're just about to, to do and how to don your life jacket. And I thought if we ditch, Ken would be a very busy boy right now because <laughs> <laughs> he will have to don everyone else's jacket before his or maybe hopefully he'll don his first. But um, that was the first experience and it was a horrible day to fly. I was petrified there were water oozing through the cracks of the aircraft and didn't see a thing until we hit the deck in Nukalofa Um, so that was my first experience in an aeroplane and I thought oh do I still want to fly maybe not (laughs) (laughs) but you then you then continued on to Australia which is your first time uh, leaving Tonga was that a bit of a culture shock That's an understatement (laughs) because we landed in Auckland first and we had a couple of hours uh, 
layover before we uh, changed flight to come. And that was my very first experience of uh, the terminal, the size of things and cars never lost in my head. When Ken took me out to the observation deck and I looked down and the cars on the, on, on the road and I said, is that all the cars in the world? The innocent of that statement, now I'm thinking about it and I go, oh, that was very dorky, Silver. But that was what in my head, the amount of cars. And then Ken said to me, huh, wait until you see Melbourne being a bigger city. And of course, arriving, yes, he was right. Uh, the terminal was full of people of all, you know, different race and buzzing. What hit me in the in the terminal is the light. The light was just overwhelmingly blinding me. There was so much. Bear in mind, I came from a village with no electricity to enter this arrival hall buzzing with people and bright light. All the noise, the lights all mingle into one. And, um, and then, of course, followed on with the distance of driving. I was over it the first day. Wow, wow. The second day, I don't care. I want to sleep. You know, it was just, it seemed to be keep going and going and going. Very, very bizarre experience. Arriving into Australia, that little conversation I had with Ken about my fantasy to fly an aeroplane. Never mentioned for the whole 10, 11 years of being in Australia. As we caught on with being young parents, a mum without the network of family that I'm used to in Tonga. When someone in Tonga have a baby, mum will be there, sisters will be there, aunties will be there. And here I am in Australia, felt alone. Ken was my lifeline. So he was everything. He was the mum that I never have here. He was the auntie that I've never had here. He was my driver as I never driven a car, let alone being inside a motor car. Mm. So all of that when we um, got here to Australia got in the way. Mm. Just general living got in the way. Even though uh, life get in the way, mortgage and bills I still have that fascination about aeroplane because lots of Sundays we packed up the kids, I made some sandwiches, filled the thermos, off we went to Moorabbin, sit under the flight path of the aircraft and just watch aircrafts coming in and out, you know, doing circuits. And then we come home and I was happy, but never ever mention again about me flying. Mm-hmm. It was left as that fantasy because I still didn't think I will ever get there until Ken got diagnosed with his cancer. We were at Peter McCallum. He had his first dose and I went up to kiss him goodbye. And that's when it popped. said, do you still want to fly? And I thought, whoa, where did that come from? Okay, Ken, you are full of drugs, chemos and all that. Just go to sleep. And I never mention it again until, because once again, we have to get Ken healthy again. 
So that became priority. Never mentioned what he said because I didn't think he said that in a serious way. I still mm. thought that he was just um, delusional. That he was completely serious. And then on your 31st birthday, he gifted you a flying lesson. What do you remember about your first flight? It was $20 and I thought, oh, wow, I knew I was cheap, but I didn't think I was quite that cheap. But $20, Roger, which turned out to be a very expensive (laughs) present at the end. Mm. But um, I could not believe it. When he said, have you done anything about that flying? I said, no, are you serious? Of course, my birthday became the perfect opportunity for him to present me with a $20 introductory flight, which is not a full flying lessons. $20 only got you airborne, wide circuit, and you land. But you get to handle the control, have a little feel of it. He'll talk you into a landing and uh, went from there. So, uh, yes, that was the birth of another love affair. So what did it take then from from that day to then become eventually a flying instructor and get your licenses and things? Probably three years, 91, but 95 I was full-on instructing. Mm. Uh, But, of course, you still have to go through. When I took up the flying lessons, both Ken and I were oblivious at the level in Jenny. I thought once you become a pilot you are a pilot you know like once you become a a driver you are a driver very little did I know you start off you go solo you build your hours and more training and you become a restricted license holder and then you build up again to unrestricted which is your private license and even then you still can't take people you still can't earn any money it's illegal until you get to your commercial license. And I go, wow, I didn't realize this. So you go through to your commercial. There's so much more layer uh, onto being a commercial pilot license than just a license. Mm. And so after you became a flying instructor, you tried to find uh, a job as a pilot which turned out to be a little bit harder than um, obviously you would have liked but you did find a job eventually with Royal Tongan Airlines you described how on your first flight the pilots were white men who didn't speak Tongan but going over to Tonga and then uh, taking that first flight with passengers and as a captain uh, um, ultimately in Tonga you were able to make the announcement in in Tongan how proud did that make you feel? That's one of those moments that you will never forget I mean, you are, when you get to go and take an aircraft up solo on a solo flight, that's will probably override every other feeling you had, even right through to jets. But I thought even when I started to fly and I realized, okay, I have spent way too much money now, or we, both Ken and I, spend way too much money on my flight um, lessons I think I need to get some return from it. And then I had in my mind then a goal. I would love to go back to Tonga and fly and deliver PA in my language, which is something, you know, 20 years earlier that I thought was impossible. So to take that flight and I make the announcement in English first 
and I quickly change it to my native tongue and you run with it as robotically. But towards the end, I nearly lost it. Mm -hmm. But I composed myself until I go click the, you know, the microphone finish. And then I take a deep breath as tears already rolling down and I thought I still have to finalize the paperwork I still have to <laughs> finalize the refueling and all of that but you had every right to be proud because that was probably the first time on any plane in Tonga where there was a woman making an announcement in the local language yes I always say that I never like to use the word pride because I think my grandfather always say it's not a nice way a word to be proud and you know, pride was not in my vocabulary. If I want to describe it, it will be gratitude. Uh, it was full of gratitude because I don't class myself as doing something uh, different or significant because I believe that any other woman from my background, given the opportunity like I was given, will deliver exactly what I did. The outcome will be exactly the same. So I was just uh, happy and feel a lot of gratitude for the opportunity I was given and for me to complete the task. And I, to be honest with you, if my career ended there, I would be as happy as Larry because that's all the goal was, to deliver, fly in my country, deliver my PA in my language. Mission accomplished. But of course, he didn't uh, end there. And uh, after a few years in Tonga, he had to come back to Australia due to Ken's health issues. But like your experience with trying to find a job, you know, after when you were a flying instructor, it was, again, quite difficult to find a job in Australia. Um, do you think that being a woman sadly made that harder? I think without a doubt, it's there. I would like to believe otherwise. But when you have knockback, 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 when I felt I have all the credential, I've had all the qualification, the experience, and I'm still hitting closed doors, I think it need for someone to walk in my shoes to understand it could be all in my head or maybe not. But yes, in my mind, I was start thinking that, I was start doubting that because when you start seeing the application pile keep growing and growing and growing with no job, um, you can't help feeling that way. Mm. And probably being mothers, not just being a woman, it is a no-brainer for, and I understand it too, because for a business owner, you would like the best return from your employee and if your employee becomes you know uh, I'm gonna be sick tomorrow I, I can't come in because my daughter or my son is sick from the business point I totally understand but if I were a man would they no they won't think twice about it and maybe that's why, maybe maybe it is in our DNA as a woman. It's in our role and that's what divides a man and a woman and you just have to soldier on and take the goods and the bad. And, but I don't want it to be the focus that 
I didn't get a job because I was a woman. But it was tough. Oh, I have absolutely no doubt about that. Even today, the number of female pilots around the world is about 5%, so 95% are men. What do you think it's going to take to lift that number? It's very difficult to analyze. I'm not qualified either to make comments about that. Sure. I'm sure there's a lot of pilots out there who would love to throw their two cents worth, but um, I don't know. To be honest with you, I can't give you an answer for that. There could be a lot of factors. Um, Maybe we are not out there to advocate for girls. You can do it too. It could be girls just not interested. So um, I don't know, Matt. Fair enough. Um, You did eventually find a job after you came back to Australia with Aero Pelican, which was a small airline based out of Newcastle. Uh, Tell me about how you uh, applied for that job. When I came back, we nurture Ken to life, to, you know, good health relatively. And I was working because it wasn't in my peripheral to rely on government handout. I went once and it intensified my colour, my gender, when I walk into Centrelink. I, I was reduced to tears that thought, I am perfectly healthy. I can find a job. So fast forward, I finish up work in a aged care facility. So absolutely love that job. I love the interacting with our elderly. Everyone had a story. I wish I didn't have to work. I wish I could just go there and talk to them. But it was just one day after 10 months, I thought my feet was hurting, my back was hurting, and I was start getting snappy, teary, missing the sky so much. So I came and, of course, uh, bought a ticket because I was sick and tired of applying phone call and getting nowhere. And I thought I need to show my face. So I wanted to start from somewhere that may have, or an airline who may have, the typical aircraft that I've gained so much experience, command, and I also trained pilots in that aircraft. So Aeropelican was the largest operator of um, Twin Otters. So mind you, I've probably rung 10 times. There was probably five written one with nowhere to go. And I thought, you know what? I need to front up. I need to knock at their door. So I purchased the ticket, drove from Sydney to Aeropelican, <laughs> and I walk in, and that blonde that I've spoken <laughs> to a, a lot of time, and I said, can I please speak to the chief pilot? And she would start asking all technical questions. The same time this chief pilot walked out from a closed door, I didn't realise that he was the chief pilot. And of course saw it, and he said, can I help you? <laughs> introduce myself and everything. And he goes, well, it's not a very good time at the moment. I'm in the middle of CASA audit. And I thought, (laughs) oh, no, I've lost a job before I even, you know. It wasn't a good time at all. But he said, if you have a one-page, luckily enough, I only had a one-page resume straight to the point. Mm -hmm. And then he said, "Um, I'll give you a, a call later. I'll have a look at it. So, a week later, I got the phone call. So it was a good outcome. And there you go. I bet if I keep calling and I keep writing, I would never get there. But uh, I think he appreciated the effort I made that day. 
even if during a CASA audit wasn't the ideal time. No, <laughs> it didn't sort of uh, make me feel like, well, that's it. It's gone. I was still st- stood my ground and in- did the introduction as fast as I can. And then it was a good outcome. That's great. And then uh, a year or two later, you got a job with the Royal Flying Doctor Service based uh, back in Melbourne as well. So you didn't have to uh, live away from from Ken. Um, for, for those of who might not be familiar, could you maybe just explain briefly what the Royal Flying Doctor Service does? Royal Flying Doctor Service is a, um, a non-for-profit uh, organisation. I think all Australians would be familiar with the Royal Flying Doctor but um, we delivered service, and it's not always about emergencies. We did a lot of patient transport to remote area that we can uh, bring them to the city, have the treatment, and then uh, return them to where they come from. Uh, we often have what we call the med one, which the emergency is going to another level. But me as a pilot, I can't call that uh, because we're taking uh, paramedics and doctors. Depending on uh, the emergency we are going for, it could be a doctor, a nurse, and a paramedic or uh, just two paramedics. And um, they will dictate when to call a med one. Mind you, sometimes we come in and we go, oh, it's busy. It's busy in the airspace of Melbourne. Can we have a med one? Can we up that to a med one? <laughs> uh, so you get priority to land faster. Oh, not only yeah. land. We have priority. Everybody will get ah, uh, right. yeah, diverted elsewhere to give us the direct route. All oh, right. I didn't know that. Feels really good when you go when you flying into uh, a city and next minute you and we declare a met one. And you can hear the controller go, uh, Qantas 24210, left heading such and such. <laughs> and they go, what? Yeah, allowing for Met 1. And I go, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Over the big boys. <laughs> yeah. I mean, f- because obviously you're helping people, um, you know, in medical emergencies or helping patients get transported and things like that, it must have been a very satisfying job. Absolutely. It took my flying career to a different level altogether in every sense of the word. Not only the service we provide in helping people, rescuing lives and all that, but also the machine we were flying. You know, it was fast, it was slippery, it was pressurized, and I'm the boss and that's it, me and myself. And um, it's a lot of satisfaction because you could be going somewhere only to be told, Forget about that mission you were going to. There is a more urgent need for you now direct to such and such. And, of course, arms and legs going everywhere as you pull maps out and you start changing your direction, getting your clearance and all that. Um, Yes, RFDS, of all the glam of the big jet, I'd say Royal Flying Doctor will hold that highest level always in my head. And I mean, you must have flown to some quite remote places, and I'm not not just um, airports, but also roads, farms, airstrips, all sorts of places like that. I always say that I think I was lucky I had the soft part of RFDS. Um, I never got to, to land on roads because by the time I came along, 
the machines we were flying was a little bit too advanced, too too sophisticated to land on roads. Uh, and to land on road, of course, it's still a short field takeoff um, landing aircraft, but it was a lot harder to organize and amalgamate everybody to close a section of the road and to contact the operation safely. So, but nevertheless, I've been to remote places where there's no lights at nighttime. They still light the flares on the side of the runway. How do they do that? So they they literally get people to come along and light up um, flares? Yes, paramedics. (laughs) It's called paramedics. They get to the airport first um, and then they know we talk uh, and also the controller will tell the people on the ground our ETA, estimated time of arrival, to a place and say 10 minutes prior arrival, they will go along and light the uh, torch the, the side of the runway and, um, yeah, enable us to come in. Nice. And so you then got offered a job with Virgin Blue as um, firstly as a 737 first officer in based in Sydney and then Melbourne, and then you got a secondment over to New Zealand where you got to fly for their, their sister airline, Pacific Blue, flying to destinations including Tonga, which must have been uh, obviously great for you. But you, you described in your book that on that first uh, flight over from Auckland to Tonga, you got into Tongan airspace and uh, contacted the air traffic controller um, speaking Tongan and uh, the air traffic controller recognised you. Yes. Or, or your voice. Bizarre, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. What uh, happened when you got to Tonga? Well, of course I flew in Tonga, so they it didn't take much at all to put two and two together that this is me now flying into their airspace. But uh, there was so much excitement in her voice when, you know, she realised it was me. And I got to the tarmac and all the ground crew that I used to work with before are still there. And they are the one who handle our arrival in the 737. So um, it, it was a beautiful moment. And not only for the crew, of course, I let my family knew that I was coming on that day. So, Did you have to fly straight back to Auckland? Yes, we didn't stay overnight. Ah, but you, but your family still came out to the airport and gave you a feast. <laughs> <laughs> it was. It, we're all known everywhere around the world with all our food. <laughs> we love our food. Um, yes, I told my sister and she arrived. And sure enough, we had roast peak and, you know, lubulu and... Uh, all our faikakai, all our uh, local delicacies, she had them all packed individually into a box and uh, (laughs) it was a a really, really memorable day. And you had to finish all that food before you got back to New Zealand because you obviously couldn't take that through customs. Correct, yeah. So uh, we left some, so Ken missed out on that day, but uh, he's, you know, seen it all before and had plenty of them. But uh, it was a very, very uh, emotional day nonetheless. Uh, fancy taking a jet into the Tongan airport, the Tongan mm-hmm. airspace. And I delivered my PA, like as I did before, in both English and then in Tongan. And it was so funny. I was a first officer at the time and the captain picked up the microphone after I did and he went, well, I did not understand a word she said. Hopefully, she said something nice about me. (laughs) (laughs) 
Virgin did always have a, and does still have a very good sense of humour. Yes. Yeah. What they say, the virgin flair. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. And you got to fly the Prime Minister of Tonga as well on a flight from Sydney to Nukualofa. Yes, uh, Fred. I play tennis with Fred during my time of um, flying or base in Tonga and uh, couldn't believe it because when I left Tonga, he wasn't the Prime Minister. And I was sitting in the cockpit in Sydney when we were delayed and they told us that we are having uh, some VIP on board. And next minute we saw because they have to come where we park in Sydney, they didn't have the aero bridge. Uh-huh. They actually walk up the steps. That's how I saw him. You know, I'm sitting there in the cockpit and I'm looking him walking through that door to the staircase. And then I, I said to the captain, ah, oh, that's Fred. <laughs> and he looked at me and he said, what? And uh, he said, but that's the prime minister. And I said, yeah, I know him. And he go, go on then, go and say hello. I think he was daring me because he thought, I didn't know him. And, of course, I jumped out of my seat and came out and uh, met the PM at the top of the staircase. And even people there was quite surprised that I still spoke the appropriate dialect reserve for nobles and hierarchy uh, people. They said, where did you? Because when I made the PA, I would do it in the um, common one, then I would lift it to nobles and the likes of prime ministers, which is a different dialect. Yeah, and on brand for Virgin as well. Yes. um, To to make the announcements in that way. So you then became a first officer on the Boeing 777. How did that compare to flying twin otters around Tonga and then later around New South Wales? Completely two different aircraft and it meant to me in different ways. The twin otters... I will always have a special uh, place in my heart because that was my very first turbine aircraft. But to take it to the cockpit of a 777, that's a very different category uh, all over again. Uh, The relationship I had with the 777, strangely enough, that was before the Twin Otters because I was still a rookie. I was still in a flying school and I walk in and saw a magazine with a photo of a cockpit, a cockpit, because I didn't even know what it is, what it was. So I looked into it and it was a cockpit of a 777. The 777 was being brought to Darwin in Australia for the uh, hot climate testing. So that was about 94, 95. And... I really wanted to go and see that. But, of course, money was not always available. I can't have everything. I was uh, channeling every excess cash we had for my flight training. So, anyway, I pick up this magazine and I took it to a photographer and asked, and I blow it up? And he said, the only way to do it, this is going back to the 90s, very early 90s. There was no phone. There was no technology where you can just take a, you know, a shot of it and take it out to uh, – to enlarge it, and uh, a photographer created a negative and blow it up into a beautiful picture where I hung on my wall since 1994 and it's still hung on my wall today. I can see it behind you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I used to walk past and I look at it. It was a completely mystery. 
it was uh, a mysterious aircraft. I had no idea what I was looking at on the wall. There was TV screens in my eyes. There were switches, buttons and everything. And of course, uh, much, much later on, I had the opportunity of all the aircrafts in the world, I was given an opportunity to fly a 777. Now, I look at that picture on my wall with a very different eyes than I saw it in 1994. I can recall every switch, every button, and I can close my eyes and imagine I'm roaring down the runway in Johannesburg or Los Angeles uh, or Sydney, Melbourne, for that matter. So, um, yeah, two different aircraft. Uh, both hold a very special part in my heart for them. I'm sure you've been asked this uh, plenty of times before, but if there are any young girls listening to this in Tonga or anywhere else, uh, really, is and, and they're interested in becoming a pilot, is there anything that you would like to say to them? It's a very good question, and I wrote the book never with the intention to be an inspiration because I believe I'm not qualified for it. I'm not Michelle Obama or the Dalai Lama for that matter. Uh, they are inspirational people you can look up, and they walk the talk, and you can listen to. For me, who am I to give advice? I was just hope that sharing my story through my book and if a young girl out there pick it up and go, wow, an island girl from 200 population and no future ahead, how can it be that I finish up in a cockpit of a Boeing 777? And if a young girl with dreams that it, you know, unreachable, they can look at my story and hope will be with them that one day they can. And it is so true what I always say. This is through my experience. Hope is a big part of my life. The rest, I feel like Lord works in mysterious ways. Who would ever think that in my life in a little island with dreams and hopes to fly an aeroplane, it was never, ever going to happen but how that universe works in mysterious ways that can finish up in my island. I didn't even have to leave the island to go look for him. <laughs> he came and found me. So for a young girl out there, never, ever give up hope, even though when it seems to be unreachable, because we don't know what the future holds. You know, all our path is already being dictated by someone above. I always feel like never see the mountain as unreachable or too big to climb. Take one step at a time. If you look to the top, you'll never start the climb. But if you start from the bottom, chip at it one by one, step by step, before you know it, you reach the top. But if you want a career in aviation, I encourage it. It is very rewarding. It's a great life. And you get to experience and see the world. So go for it, girls, boys. <laughs> I've got one more question for you. I understand that um, you were unfortunately made redundant when Virgin Australia gave up its 777 fleet during COVID, as many pilots were during the pandemic. And sadly, you also lost your husband, Ken, around the same time. I'm sure it was a difficult time for you. Um, but do you think you'll return to the sky at some point? 
when the true love of my life left me, both within three months of each other, I lost Ken in June. I lost my wings in October of the same year. I believe that my flying was always a teamwork. One cannot function without the other. And when Ken left, even before I got redundant, I didn't think I will return to the skies because it felt incomplete. I'm used to going flying, flutter my wings everywhere, come back, and I love it when I open the door. I can hear the kettle going. It's a very warm, fuzzy feeling to come home to. Knowing I would go again to the skies and return with none of that, I didn't think I could cope with it. In saying that, when we were made redundant, we were given the opportunity to return to Virgin Australia in any form of flying, if the opportunity arises again, we'll be the first one uh, to return. I was in the first group because I was senior enough within the company, but I had some other hurdles, which I think it, we can go into it in another time. I have some health issues, <laughs> which I think it's called age. It's a terrible <laughs> disease. But um, now it's nearly three years on since I lost my wings, since I lost Ken, I think I'm ready. I think I would I'm start missing the skies now more. I know my Ken would love to see me return because he knows how much I work for it, how much I love the skies. So never say never. Um, I still got until 2026. Uh, that's my right to return without going through the uh, application process. Mm. So, um, yeah, I had an, a conversation, interesting conversation yesterday with uh, the chief pilot of Virgin Australia, just touching base, congratulating me on the book and checking how am I going with uh, the likelihood of returning to the skies. So, uh, yes, it's still there. It hasn't gone away and I haven't shut that door yet. And I guess with the 777s gone, you'd be going back to the 737? Correct. That's the sad part about it. The 737, it's something that I've already done. Uh, I flew that around Australia as well as New Zealand. I was uh, grateful to do all the South Pacific. So I've even taken the red jet to Tonga, to Fiji, to Vanuatu, to uh, Cook Islands. So, uh, and of course, all the different ports of New Zealand. Would I go back to something that I've already done? Maybe the skies will take me back rather than the aircraft. Uh, the 777, I feel like it has already taken me to the top of what I could ever wish or hope for. Yeah, but it will be the 737 if I return. Sadly, the 777 is no longer. That is never going to happen in my lifetime because you have to be 65 and under to be able to operate internationally. So um, <laughs> we all have expiry dates. <laughs> Mine for international is uh, certainly <laughs> up, but I can fly in Australia. There is no age discrimination here, thank goodness. I can return to a domestic capacity. 
All right. Well, if you ever do get back to flying the 737s, it would be a real privilege to have you flying me as one of your passengers one day. Um, but whatever happens, Silver, I wish you all the best. Silver McLeod's book, Island Girl to Airline Pilot, is available now in bookstores and online. And it's a great read. And Silver, thanks so much for coming on the AFF On Air podcast. It's been a real pleasure chatting to you today. Thank you so much, Matt. And if I do return to the skies and you hear my accent, I would like you to pop in and say g'day, all right? Absolutely. How would you do that? You've got a deal. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Thanks so much. Before I wrap up this episode, a quick update for anyone who would like to use their Velocity Frequent Flyer points to get to Hawaii. As many many of you will already know, you can redeem Virgin Australia Velocity points to book reward seats on its partner airlines, including Hawaiian Airlines, and Hawaiian currently flies to Honolulu from Sydney and Auckland, New Zealand using Airbus A330s. These planes have 18 live flat business class seats up the front of the plane. Now, I've been keeping an eye on Hawaiian Airlines award availability over the last little while. For a long period, quite a few months, there were almost no business class seats available at all to book as Velocity reward seats. But this has been changing over the past few weeks. There's now quite a bit of business class reward seat availability on Hawaiian Airlines for travel over the next few months um, out of Sydney and Auckland to Honolulu, including some flights with multiple seats available in business class, and economy award availability is not bad either at the moment. Uh, now, with Hawaiian Airlines, you probably won't be able to find much availability if you're looking like more than, more than say, five or six months out, so the usual rule of booking 11 or 12 months in advance doesn't really apply here, but if you want to travel in the next sort of two, one, two, three or four months, um, there, there might be some seats available. Now, unfortunately, Hawaiian Airlines reward seats do not appear on the Virgin Australia website. So if you want to book a Hawaiian Airlines flight using your Velocity points, you do have to call up the Velocity Membership Contact Centre. Um, unfortunately, that also means that you can't use the Virgin Australia website to search for availability of reward seats. But there is a, a, a workaround that you can use. Um, Hawaiian Airlines also partners with American Airlines um, on, and, and you can use American Airlines Advantage Miles to book Hawaiian Airlines reward seats, not, um, not on routes between Hawaii and the mainland US, but, you, but on routes between uh, Hawaii and Australia and New Zealand, you, you can use Advantage Miles. And uh, if you use the American Airlines web t- website to search for award seats, between Sydney and Honolulu or Auckland and Honolulu, it will show the availability of Hawaiian Airlines reward seats. Now, it's not 100% guaranteed that this will work every time, but if there is a Hawaiian Airlines seat available to book using Advantage Miles on either of those routes, you should be able to call up Velocity and also use uh, your Velocity points to book that same seat because the, um, the award infantry comes from exactly the same place in both cases. So yeah, if you've been thinking about going to Hawaii, have a have a look on the American Airlines website to see if there's any availability and uh, give Velocity a call. There are seats available at the moment. Finally, for this episode, I wanted to let you know about a webinar I'll be hosting later this month over at Frequent Flyer Solutions. The topic is Avios for Aussies, and it'll be held at 8pm Australian Eastern Standard Time on Thursday, the 25th of May. Now, in this webinar, we're going to take a close look at the loyalty programs of British Airways and Qatar Airways, which both use Avios as their common like points currency. 
Avios also happens to be the currency of the Iberia, Vueling, and Aer Lingus loyalty programs, and you can transfer Avios at a one-to-one rate between all of those programs. Avios are particularly interesting for us in Australia for a few reasons. Firstly, you can buy Avios at discounted rates, including with an Avios subscription, and you can then redeem those Avios to book Qantas business class flights around Australia at quite low rates. Uh, Perhaps even more interestingly, though, is that having Avios gives you access to Qatar Airways business and first class reward seats, including to and from Australia, before Velocity and well before Qantas frequent flyer members get access to those same seats. Uh, And when you're using Avios to book around 355 days in advance at the initial release date, you can fairly reliably find two business class reward seats on most Qatar Airways flights out of Australia um, when booking with Avios. Um, those seats would not be made available to Velocity members until about a month later. And those redemptions are particularly good value too. Um, from Australia to Europe with Qatar Airways, it's only 90,000 Avios compared to if you were going to use Qantas points, it would be 159,000 Qantas points. Um, with Velocity, it's 139,000 or so. Uh, and the carrier charges and taxes are also lower when you're using um, using Avios. Um, and so it's, it's really a no-brainer if you're looking for Qatar Airways seats. Um, and with a subscription, that can work out to be quite good value in obtaining the Avios too. I'll explain all of this in detail and more about those uh, frequent flyer programs in the upcoming webinar. And if you'd like to learn more, I'd be happy to see you there. If you would like to attend the webinar, um, you do need to register in advance and you'll find more information at frequentflyer.com.au or have a look at the episode notes. Well, that's all for this episode of AFF On Air. Thanks again so much to my guest, Silver McLeod. I really enjoyed that interview and thank you very much for listening. Just to let you know, the next podcast will probably be released around the start of next month. In the meantime, though, you can check out the episode notes for more information about anything discussed in this episode. In the episode notes, you'll also find a link to the AFF on air discussion thread where you're welcome to discuss the podcast or ask me a question to be answered in a future episode. And if you enjoyed this podcast, I'd really appreciate if you'd take just a minute to review AFF on air on Apple Podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe. I'm Matt Graham, and I'll see you next time with more news, tips, and tricks for Australian travellers. Until then, safe travels.